A lot of my work has been influenced by um, research I did for the International Labour Organization in the late 1990s. I was still doing my PhD uh, on immigration and I had the opportunity through good luck um, to work as a junior consultant on a project for the Ministry of Labour in Kuwait, who, for reasons that were not immediately clear, certainly now looking back, who commissioned the International Labour Organization to do a, a study on, on reforming the kafil system in, in Kuwait, uh, the sponsorship system. So um, a senior consultant, uh, Martin Godfrey, a uh, British labor economist, and I went, and we worked on a study for a year, uh, produced a big report, uh, which is now sitting somewhere on the shelves of the ILO. It was never published because uh, having commissioned the study in the first place, there was a change of ministers in the Kuwaiti Ministry of Labor and uh, the, the, the second minister then decided that it would not be a good idea to publish this piece of work. So it's never been published. But, um, I mean, two things I'd like to highlight from that. One is we did um, a large survey of migrant workers, including domestic workers, um, in Kuwait. And we asked them all kinds of questions. But um, we also asked them questions about contract substitution. So that means to what extent were the wages and conditions that you experienced in Kuwait different from what you were expecting before. And what we found was that around a quarter said they experienced that and the other said they didn't. So 75% said the situation they found themselves in was entirely expected before they left. Uh, which in a way to me, I really didn't know very much about the region uh, before doing work there. Um, I mean, you can argue whether you know a quarter is low or high, but uh, one, one uh, message in a way that, that I took from that is that uh, despite everything we hear about the Gulf, fact is that the large majority of labor migration to the Gulf is voluntary in the sense that people have reasonably good information about what expects them when they're there. And the reason for that is that a lot of it is about repeat migration. So people come and go. So, so you know, when you interview people and you interview, I don't know, a Bangladeshi, I remember interviewing a Bangladeshi security guard who, in my view, was working under awful conditions and terrible rights restrictions and who explained to me how grateful he was that he could be there. And he was sacrificing a few years of his life for the good of his children and his family in Bangladesh. Because so, so the message I took from that was that kind of normatively when you think about these things, extreme tight labor situation, extreme force of exploitation from, from the outsider's point of view might look rather different from the person's point of view. And it's hard to, I think it complicates the ethical discourse when there's a, a significant element of choice in it. The other, the other kind of more, uh, the other, the other thing I took from, from that trip was was really my, the approach to my work. To a lot of my work is to try to understand what's driving these issues in terms of interest, in terms of political economy. So why is it that these arrangements exist? What are the costs and benefits of these arrangements? And it's clear that that the arrangement in the Gulf benefits many people. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. The system has been very stable for a long time. So similarly, what I want to do today is just talk a little bit about the political economy of migrant labor. By that I mean, what are the economic forces behind it? Why does it exist and why is it hard to, to change? And what are the implications for some uh, normative debates about it? So uh, since, I'll take about 10-15 minutes, uh, since Bridget invited me to speak, I thought I couldn't get away without first talking about definitions a little bit. So I have got to say a little bit about definitions. And basically I'm going to focus on on the importance, I think, of, of the exit option when thinking about a tied migrant labor. The second point I want to make is really that, I mean, tying, 
tight labor is really a core feature of almost all labor immigration policies in the world. So I really want to make that point quite strongly that when we talk about tight labor, we're talking about basically a key feature of almost all legal labor immigration policies for legally bringing in migrant workers. So it's a fact. Then I'm trying to briefly talk about who, who, benefit, who, who benefits from it and what are the costs. Of course, when you explain something, you, you think about institutions, interests, ideas, all kinds of different factors. I'm going to focus on interests, i.e. on cost of benefits for different groups today. And I'll conclude with saying a few things about ethics and policy implication. I mean, this looks a bit like an outline of a, of, a, of a PhD, but I'm just going to say a few things about these things today. So I think, now, I'll be very brief on definitions, but basically I just want to make clear what I am talking about today. But clearly, when you think about tied labor, you've got to start from some sort of um, discussion about what's the distinction between voluntary and forced. And I think there's been a lot of literature how it's very hard to make that distinction. There's a spectrum of choice and voluntariness, the degree of agency that people have. And I think importantly, the levels of agency that, pe that individuals have vary throughout the migration process. So you might be able to make a conscious decision with good information to do something at some stage when you leave your country but then you know as you go through recruitment agencies and you end up with employers your agency might diminish and you might end up in a situation that's pretty close to a, a forms of forced labor so i think that's important so so my first point i think is that and this is really uh, speaking from relative ignorance about the huge literature uh, about what constitutes forced labor but i think it's important to think about whether or not there are exit options, I think. Uh, so when you think about tight migrant worker, the question is, two people have an opportunity to get out of the situation that they're in. And of course, with a lot of forms of tight labor, we know that is not the case. In a sense, you cannot just decide to walk away and, and go home. So the existence of an exit option is important. Now, having read at least the beginnings of uh, Julia Davidson's recent paper on, on kind of debt and migration, then made me think, well, maybe it's not just the existence of an exit option, but it's the, the control that you have over your exit options. Because, of course, large part of migration is uh, facilitated by taking out loans. It's debt migration. So people make a choice to take out a loan to finance the trip. Now, by the definition, when you do that, you take away your own exit option you know, for some time. But at least the point I'm trying to make is there's some choice there. So I think when you think about tied labor and, and forced and voluntary migration, I think it's interesting to think about the degree of control people have over exit options. What I'm going to talk about today is uh, a situation where workers are legally, migrant workers are legally tied to their employers through an employment contract under a labor immigration program. So I'm not talking about um, a, a kind of illegal tying or, or tying through force. I want to just emphasize that the whole, a lot of the debate about tied labor, I think, uh, applies to something that is perfectly legal under current laws in almost all high income countries. Now, the second point is that when you look at labor immigration programs around the world, as I've done in my book last year, you see that, I mean, tied labor is, is, is a key feature. Now, so this chart shows you just the kind of policies, permanent immigration policies, temporary immigration policies. So permanent policies defined as people get permanent residence permit on arrival, temporary, initially temporary permit on arrival. 
basically, I've looked at 104 policies in 46 countries, and over 90% of these policies are all temporary immigration programs. So basically, when you talk about labor immigration programs in the world, basically you talk about guest worker programs or temporary immigration programs that give temporary permission on arrival. And almost all of these policies, almost without exception, tie workers uh, either to single employers or at least to specific sectors of the economy. And, and the reason for that is that the, uh, a lot of labor immigration happens in response to employers saying in specific sectors occupations that there are shortages. So there's a shortage in the IT sector, there's a shortage in agriculture, and then you started labor immigration to bring in migrants to work in that sector. Now, if you cannot tie workers to that sector, a lot of rationale for bringing in migrants in the first place goes away. Okay, so that's why so th this shows the kinds of, I looked at the kinds of restrictions that are imposed on immigration. And uh, so, you know, whether or not there's a quote or whether there's a job offer, you know, the sectoral restrictions are among the four key ways in which labor immigration is regulated. So basically, the main way in which labor immigration is regulated in different countries through quotas, the requirement of a job offer, labor market tests, and through restrictions of sector and on, on occupation. It's a core feature. Similarly, when you look at the rights that migrant workers have in different countries under labor immigration programs, one of the most heavily restricted rights is the right to free choice uh, of employment, which is restricted in almost all temporary immigration programs. So this measures the restrictiveness of rights. Zero means heavy restriction, one means no restriction, equality of rights for citizens. And I compare temporary immigration programs to permanent ones. Permanents generally have very few restrictions. So basically, all, almost all temporary immigration programs restrict the right to free choice of employment, as I said, by tying workers to single employers and or sectors. These are rights restrictions. Again, in the center, is the restrictions are greatest. If you move out, fewer restrictions. The re restrictions, of course, are greatest in, in, the, in the Middle East. We know that in, in the Gulf states. Um, followed by uh, Southeast Asia and, uh, and then other regions of the world. So the one economic right, in a way, the one labor right that is almost always restricted is precisely that right in practice. So in a way, the zones of unfree labor, as Mark has called them, are integral parts of legal labor immigration policies in all, almost all high-income countries. So the next thing I'd like to talk about is some of the interests. So in a way, you can ask the question, so who, who, who benefits from these arrangements? Why does it exist? I, so I want to start by thinking about the national interest, and we can have a discussion about whether that exists or not. Uh, so that means the governments formulating national policy objectives and, and saying something needs to be done because it's good for the country or for the economy. So the main benefit, of, as I said, of tying workers to sectors is that it enables you to, res to use immigration to alleviate shortages in particular occupations and sectors. If you can't do that, um, the rationale for admitting migrants often goes away. Uh, there's a good example in the UK recently where uh, I sit on the Immigration Advisory Committee and we were asked to consider whether or not we should give full access to Roma Romanians and Bulgarians uh, in uh, last time around, so I think that was in 2009, and uh, the social care sector made a strong case for uh, letting Romanians and Bulgarians allow in, in care occupations in the UK, including low-skilled ones. And I think we were, you know, quite taking this argument very seriously. But at the end of the day, one, one obstacle to having the program was that we were advised by Home Office lawyers that you could not restrict Romanians and Bulgarians' employment to the care sector for more than one year. Because after that one year, they would have free choice of employment. 
because they're EU nationals. Uh, and that was one major reasons why we in the end did not recommend opening the program because the expectation was that most workers would leave the care sector and go into other sectors where there were not, where the, the thinking was that there weren't any shortages. So basically restricting this right to free choice of employment is a way of enabling countries to admit migrant workers. If you can't restrict it, the incentives uh, decline. Now on the downside, of course, rights restrictions can lead and the, the restriction of free choice of employment can lead to extreme forms of labor market segmentation. Uh, a clear downside. Again, the extreme cases in the Gulf. So you restrict migrants to certain sectors, those sectors then become very dominant and very intensive in their use of migrant labor to the point that they become completely um, staffed by migrant workers. So if you're concerned about your opportunities, work opportunities for citizens, then you want to be very concerned about um, tying workers to sectors for a long time and the impact that has on labor markets. So I think in the, in, the, in the Gulf states now there is concern about getting more citizens back into the private sector. In Kuwait, 99% of private sector work is done by migrants. Now the country wants to have more citizens in the private sector. You can only do that if you give migrant workers more rights, in my view, because because of the severe rights restrictions experienced by migrants, conditions between this, the public sector where citizens work and, pri and the private sector where migrants work are so extreme that you will never incentivize citizens to work in those sectors. So I think there's an important downside to this, obviously. Obviously, if you restrict the right to of employment for migrants, this can have very negative impact on, on domestic workers who, who, who might have kind of unfair competition. In a way, migrants might have a competitive advantage over domestic workers in the competition for jobs because they're more attractive to employers. So that brings me to employers. Employers like tight workers precisely because they can control works in terms of time, space, and employment conditions. So the National Farmers Union, I've said this many times, uh, National Farmers Unions in this country has gone on record formally in written evidence to the House of Lords saying that they have a demand for workers who are tied to the farm during harvesting period. They do not want workers with free choice employment because these workers could walk away when the going gets tough and when the weather turns and all of that. So that's why the farmers unions did not think that Romanians and Bulgarians would be, continue to be a good workforce for them because with free choice employment they could walk away and do any job. And this is why the Farmers Union was lobbying for a new guest worker program for non-EU workers who are tied. So employers often prefer migrants to other workers precisely because of their tight labor status. Again, from the domestic workers' point of view, obviously there's a concern about undercutting, as I said. That, you know, that, that, that means that uh, free labor loses out to tight labor because the tight labor is more attractive. Um, now, but there's also an upside for domestic workers in the sense that domestic workers very much want migrants to be restricted in sectors where there are shortages because you don't want competition in the other sectors where there are no shortages. Okay, so I think it's a double-edged sword in a way. I mean, consumers benefit from tight workers because it enables products to be produced cheaper than they otherwise would. So um, in Britain, you get stro British strawberries uh, only because there is tight labor on British farms. If, if that labor um, you know, is not provided anymore, then probably the industry will change and maybe no more British strawberries. Uh, as it is, I think it's only 30%. They're still British in strawberries. Uh, but um, the way the work is organized is all uh, dependent on this particular form of labor. I think recruitment agencies are very important. The recruitment agencies capture 
a share of the wage gap between the receiving country and the sending country. And the fact that workers are tied, which means the fact that there is a specific employer that recruitment agencies can work for, means that they're, you know, they have much greater leverage over uh, migrants in terms of um, you know, how, much, how big their share can be. Now, for migrants, of course, uh, what migrants want, first of all, is access to, to, to work in higher income countries. So um, the extent, the fact they are tied uh, is, is an issue, obviously, but it's, it's, a, it's an issue that's secondary. The first issue is whether or not you get access or not. And there's negative impacts of tying on wages, clearly. There's quite a bit of evidence of that. So if you're tied, you cannot maximize the marginal product of your labor, which means you're unable to find employer that would pay the highest wage for your labor uh, because you have got, you're very limited in what you can do. So I'll just conclude by saying a few things about the ethics and policy implications. So what I've been trying to say is that really when you talk about tied labor, we're talking about something that's a fact. Um, it's, happening, it's happening in all countries, um, um, in all labor immigration programs. So the question is, so if you want to change it, how do you think about it? And I mean, I, I can my own ways often trying to take a kind of realistic and pragmatic approach. So my starting point is that if you believe that nation states are going to continue to exist and that immigration policy is made in national interest, some tying will always be part of labor immigration policies. It's inevitable, I think, uh, precisely for the reason that I've talked about, that if you want immigration to benefit the host economy most of the time, you, you want immigration to respond to specific shortages in specific occupations. Um, if you don't like tying, um, yeah, I think you have to consider the, the desirability of the realistic alternatives. And I think, I think if you don't like tying, especially for low-skilled workers, the realistic alternatives are exclusion or illegal immigration. So exclusion, by that I mean that workers are not admitted at all or that they come illegally. So I think uh, illegal labor immigration programs that include some tying is, in my view, preferable to the other two uh, in most cases. But the point I want to make is that, I mean, it's, it's not necessary to tie workers for a long time to single employers, even though employers want that. Um, to, to meet that goal of responding to shortages, really what you need to do is to tie workers to sectors or specific occupations. Okay, so you can think about a system if you want to think about reforming, whether you bring in migrants on a temporary basis, but you give them act, you give them the opportunity, you tie them for a short time to a specific employer, and then let them freely change employers within certain sectors and occupations. Now, if there's if there's no tying at all to any employer, then what employers will say is that their incentives for bringing in migrant workers are greatly reduced, because you know you have certain expense, you bring in migrants, and then the, the, you know, day two to the migrants can walk away and go to a different employer. Now, I have some limited sympathy for that argument because a similar argument, of course, applies to domestic workers. Always, you know, if you're an employer, if you recruit somebody, if you train somebody, there's always some costs. And in a way, there's often nothing that prevents workers from walking away. But I think you could think about a system that gives employers maybe six months or 12 months where workers are tied to, and, and then where workers are allowed to freely change employers within specific sectors and occupations. Now, I think if you have that, in my view, I'll finish with that. I think the, the conditions, I think, for making such a system acceptable from a normative point of view, in my view, anyway, I think there's at least four. First of all, I mean, obviously, you've got enforcement of rules and regulations. That means you've got to make sure that, that there is no contract substitution and that what, what people are getting themselves into um, is actually what they experience in practice. 
Secondly, I think you have to have good access to redress if something goes wrong. Migrants need uh, access to, to courts. Um, you have to have good information before people leave. So again, that's going back to Kuwait. In a way, you, you know, when you start and when you make the decision to migrate abroad and to work under tight labor circumstances, I think you need a good information that that's going to happen to start with. And fourth, fourthly, and bringing back to the beginning, I think you need to have control over exit options. And that's precis precisely what we don't have at the moment under many temporary migration programs, that people cannot just walk away, either because they're heavily in debt or either because the, the, the wages they receive are much lower than what they expected, or recruitment agencies or other people have a lot of control over what they do. And I'll finish with just one sentence, which is uh, free movement in the EU, of course, is an exception to what I've just said.